it's certainly a concern uh, since the source of, of this outbreak is still unknown, and, and uh, a lot of, several military officers has already had had discipline because the, the, that this was almost spread within a, a group of Navy sailors, uh, really reflected poorly on on, on the defense establishment's ability to conduct medical checks and safeguard its own troops. Ross, do stay safe over there. That's uh, Taipei-based political risk consultant Ross Feingold. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets uh, this morning, first of all, in Australia, losing some of the earlier gains, the ASX 200 off, uh, uh, up just half a percent now, and the Nikkei 225 also slipping a little bit. It's up two-thirds of one percent, was up higher earlier. That's been uh, happening because of the US stock index futures also slipping here in Asian trading. In South Korea... Uh, the Cosby right now, uh, that's up about two-thirds of one percent. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 30 points lower in an hour's time. And in all the, those all-important commodity markets, uh, Brent crude oil is about two percent higher here in Asian trading. The contract for June delivery trading at $20.78 a barrel. And gold is slipping a little bit. It's at $1,713 an ounce. Not much movement in the currency markets this morning in Asia. The US dollar is trading at 10780 against the Japanese yen. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Do stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Anna Fenton after the news. The weather forecast, cloudy with occasional rain, isolated thunderstorms later, and the maximum temperature is going to be about 21 degrees. The forecasters say it's going to be expected to be cool with rain in the next couple of days and the rain will be heavy at times tomorrow. It's 21 degrees right now, 89% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The top infectious disease expert in America, Anthony Fauci, has urged a careful and measured approach to reopening the economy to avoid a resurgence of the coronavirus. Dr Fauci said there was no doubt coronavirus would return later in the year, but the country would be much better prepared. At the same news conference, President Trump insisted if coronavirus came back, it would be in smaller outbreaks that could be contained. If it does, it's not going to come back on anything near what we went through. But you could have a mess where they come at the same time. And if they come at the same time, the flu is not the greatest thing in the world. It's not the greatest thing either. If they come at the same time, you have them both. But if we have embers of corona coupled with the flu, uh, that's not going to be pleasant. But it's not going to be what we've gone through in any way, shape or form. Officials in California say the first death from COVID-19 in the United States took place there in early February. This is almost three weeks before the first recorded U.S. fatality in Washington state. The health officer for Santa Clara County, Sarah Cody, said it showed community transmission of the coronavirus was occurring much earlier than previously thought. As far as we understand, none of these cases had a significant travel history. We presume that each of them represent community transmission and that there was some significant level of virus circulating in our community in early February. The World Bank has warned the coronavirus is causing a huge drop in the sums of money migrant workers are sending home to their families. Some 800 million people around the world rely on such remittances, and the bank warns the loss of this vital income could fuel a big increase in poverty. The lead economist at the World Bank, Dilip Ratha, explained the extent of the problem. 
with the crisis now, we are expecting that uh, remittances would fall by about 20%. That would be more than a $100 billion fall in remittances. But foreign direct investment would fall by even more by 37%. That gives us a sense of the order of magnitude at a global level. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Anna, good morning to you. Good morning, everybody. And we're focusing today on the economic impact of COVID-19 globally. As oil prices turn surreal and major airlines start crashing, what are the prospects in a world where no country, it seems, or industry seems immune from the effects? The IMF had forecast a shrinking of global GDP by some 3% in 2020, but now thinks that might be too positive. How long can governments prop up economies? Can banks cope? Will the developed or the developing world be hit hardest? Can China's domestic market save the day? Is East Asia now in pole position? Are we facing the worst crisis since 2008, since two, since 1929, or perhaps 1720? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and comments. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, bankchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your questions. Or you can give us a call, and our telephone number is 2 and after 9.20, we're going to be looking at those appointments of new ministers and evaluating the achievements of the outgoing ones in the administration of Carrie Lam. Joining us for our first uh, discussion we have with us now uh, Professor David Cook, Professor of Economics from the University of Science and Technology, Dan Wang, an analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit's Access China Service, and Peter Wong, who's chairman of the free market think tank, the Lion Rock Institute, as ever bank chatted rthk.hk is our email address for comment. Um, just before we uh, go to uh, today's topic, uh, just some uh, follow-up. Uh, on uh, the discussion yesterday about uh, the controversy over the role of the liaison office uh, in uh, Hong Kong, uh, this is from uh, Martin, first of all, who says, my family and I have lived in Hong Kong with some occasional uh, external arrangements, engagements since 1967. We have remained through many difficult times from the communist-inspired bombing campaign when the police were heroes, uh, then through several financial crises to now. The non-legally sanctioned interventions of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office and Liaison Office of the PRC presage no less than the death of Hong Kong, totally undermining our constitution, the basic law proposed by Deng Xiaoping. Does the current communist regime claim to be the standard bearer of Mr Deng's vision? Answer, no. This new Chinese Communist Party is a ruthless, pathetically unscientific, immoral, illegally motivated and ultimately failed version of its earlier model under Deng. This is no help to Hong Kong, where international capital investment will come to a halt and this great, brilliant city will become some kind of subnote in history. Of course, that is what the communists want. That is uh, an email uh, from uh, Martin. Thank you very much indeed um, for that. Richard says, uh, hats off to the healthcare workers who threatened to strike to push for border closure. The Blue Camp claimed it was a breach of their Hippocratic Oath. Quite the contrary, it meant the medical sector could have a fighting chance of curbing the disease in the hospitals in Hong Kong. The Blues claimed to have been on the front line too, but had carried on regardless of personal risk without recourse to strike. If there are any Blues listening, take note. Policing the streets in the virus era is not the same as working in the ICU. Get real. Those Blues, even 
needed a mask to protect them from an iPhone so we know what backbone they really have or have not. I don't think many blues listen to this program. They really don't have the stomach for dissent. That comes uh, from uh, Richard. Uh, Peter M says, regarding the Hong Kong government's ministerial reshuffle, your commentator yesterday, Mr Long, without a hint of irony, was explaining it as if it were a mainland government reshuffle and why the mainland government would want the changes made. You should have reminded him that it is, in fact, a Hong Kong reshuffle, which should be the responsibility of Hong Kong. But there's the rub. That comes uh, from uh, Peter M. And Phil, I'll get to your uh, email uh, in a little while, perhaps. Uh, Professor Cook, good morning to you. Uh, thanks for thanks for for joining us today. Um, I mean, the IMF gave that figure recently of a three percent fall in uh, global GDP for for, for twenty twenty. Is now kind of rethinking that. Do you have any sense of what the scale of this might be in terms of global GDP? Oh well, I guess I guess there are various scenarios. Uh, so I'm I'm not necessarily a forecaster, but uh, but it does seem to to me that that. Probably three percent is is probably a, a, maybe a, an optimistic scenario. It's it's likely to to be worse in in general. I think globally. What's the what's the root of the problem, or is there you know we talk about oil prices or something like that, or we talk about commodities? Where do you think is the most dangerous point of the of the world economy at the moment? Uh, well, that I mean that, that there's. That the that the the big um, uh, the risk uh, uh, area is uh, is that uh, some some of the international debt, corporate debt in in uh, the United States as as well, uh, the 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 possibility of of defaults and liquidations uh, that's that's the major risk. So. <clears throat> we hear these numbers bandied about in GDP, but to the man in the street, this doesn't actually um, impact him and his daily life. Well, what can we expect in, in changes in our daily life as a consequence of this? I mean, you know, interrupted supply of things like flour, which is very hard to get at the moment, so tinned tomatoes. I mean, is this this what we'll be aware of is shortages of things, and, uh, wildly expensive airfares, or how will it actually impact us? Oh well, so I, I think that uh, that the, the biggest worry for for the average person is is clearly unemployment. So so we saw in you know in Hong Kong during the the worst of the uh, SARS that unemployment was you know near eight percent. That that was kind of a, a severe downturn experience in Hong Kong, and that's that's sort of the the real worry I think for for many people. I mean, obviously that that there's uh, and, and of course for business owners that you know you have the, the equivalent that the, the uh, bankruptcy. So so those those I think are are kind of uh, uh, what what you're looking at is is the chief worries. Um, but but then uh, uh, part of it. Uh, part of you know the the disruption will be you know shifting our, our economies from from the things that uh, that you know people wanted to buy you know last year to to the things that that we'll need to buy this year and so those disruptions are going to be there as well so there are significant supply side uh, disruptions going on but uh, uh, that's gonna going to spill out over into a negative downturn that's that's clearly having a, a negative impact on rising unemployment. Uh, and if there are those kind of defaults you were talking about in debt, where would that strike? Where would that? Who would be most affected by that? 
Um, well, I, I mean, so so right now, it, uh, you know, it's commodities producers since commodity prices have, have fallen so much. Uh, emerging markets, I think, it, it, it generally have have a lot of debt, especially foreign currency debt. Now, so far, a lot of that uh, that liquidity has has been uh, you know managed, uh, but um, uh, but if there is a, a persistent a downturn, then there's going to be significant insolvency. And a lot of that debt is, is government to government, but a lot of it is also in the private sector, and that will have to be managed as well. Uh, 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 the governments around the world, of course, are also introducing stimulus packages, spending, That's right. spending a lot of money on that. Um, can they afford it? Uh, well, r- right now, it seems like real interest rates are in negative territory. So, uh, so yeah, that uh, that's very affordable. Uh, you know, uh, that in some sense, that you know, taking on of debt uh, by uh, the government is is a way of socializing the risk and sharing it uh, uh, more broadly amongst uh, the taxpayers. And so, uh, so if there's a recovery and interest rates start to rise, uh, to uh, to rise, that some of that will, will need to be uh, paid back. But um, given the very low interest rate environment that we're operating, it, it does seem like there there's potential for issuing uh, debt. And the the fact that that many people, uh, many investors, are likely to be seeking the safer sorts of assets. Okay. Uh, also joining us is uh, Dan Wang, uh, analyst at the Economist uh, Intelligence Unit's uh, Access China Service. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Dan. Thanks for thanks for joining us today. Uh, what about let's talk about first of all maybe about about, about the the Belt and Road. Um, I think this, this sort of connects with what Professor Cook was saying there about uh, debt and concerns over uh, the ability of countries to to, to meet those uh, to meet that debt. Where, where does this current situation leave leave the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, so the Belt and Road Initiative right now, uh, the debt repayment is a big problem. Um, because in the past decade, what the Chinese government has been focusing on was to build infrastructure all over the developing world. So we have seen a lot of the construction uh, going on in Africa, uh, Latin America, ASEAN countries, and many of those projects are not in terms of uh, direct investment, but in terms of foreign um, contracted projects which is financed by Chinese government with really cheap loans that we usually call concessional loans. So the last decade was the peak of construction, and in the coming decade, there will be a peak of debt repayment. But the COVID-19 has made this whole thing very complicated um, because for many of those Belt and Road countries, uh, they either rely on some sort of raw materials uh, like oil uh, with oil price collapse those countries' fiscal position are in real danger, and their debt repayment ability will be really jeopardized. And for a lot of other countries, uh, especially those in Asia, the smaller ones, uh, Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, they have uh, been trying to ask China to do debt relief. Um, But for them, the problem would be that their largest customers Uh, like the U.S., uh, the Europe, and also China, are all in very deep problems because of the COVID-19. If their economies don't recover, then those smaller Asian economies will find it very difficult to recover, and in turn, their debt debt repayment ability will also be jeopardized. So by default, China ends up owning all of these assets? 
that's very likely. And for many of those projects, they are not finished. So China now is facing a very difficult situation that probably, out of the political concern, China will have to continue to finance those projects. But the process will be heavily stalled. Uh, it really depends on how bad the situation can be uh, with this pandemic, especially in Africa, actually. Uh, we have tracked those countries very closely. And it looks like um, because of a short of testing kits uh, and also a lack of awareness and access to the health care system, uh, most people are not tested. And for the people who are tested, the infection rate is very high. So China has been pulling back its construction workers from those countries. Um, locally, actually, the health risk in terms of deaths is not that high um, because Africa is a very young continent. Uh, half of the continent is actually below the age of 20. Um, but it poses kind of concern uh, for the Chinese government and the Chinese company's workers that they don't want to work there, at least not immediately in the coming years. Uh, we've seen plans for a, uh, a shopping festival in Shanghai uh, and so on. Uh, you know, is there hope in the Chinese domestic market if you stimulate the consumer demand again and get industry going? Is, is you know, would that be a real prospect for recovery? Um, there are a lot of hope in that um, China's market still has a lot of potential, especially its tier one cities, its coastal areas. We know that there is a very large um, middle class growing, uh, and they have the appetite. Right now, their demand is just suppressed. Um, but the problem now is that this COVID-19 has been dragged on for quite a while, and people are getting more cautious. Uh, and to make it worse, uh, the property market is quite weak this year, and many of those middle class are also paying back their mortgages. So we have seen that people's consumption um, is, in a way, is downgrading. Uh, they're spending less, uh, they're spending things on cheaper stuff, and especially this is obvious in the electronics market. It has been very, very weak this year. Uh, we don't know if the new iPhone, for example, or some new model, the Huawei, uh, in terms of 5G uh, upgrade, would boost the market. Um, but overall, right now, the consumer policy by giving uh, consumers discount coupons, it hasn't been working very well for the majority part of China. It has worked a bit uh, in some uh, areas, uh, like in Hangzhou, in Nanjing, it has worked. Um, but I suppose this is also related to uh, those areas' richness. Uh, they are richer, they are less affected, so they recover faster. Okay, also with us is Peter Wong, Chairman of the Lion Rock Institute. Mr Wong, good morning to you. Hi, and th thanks for joining us today. What, I mean, what about the regional situation? Uh, w w since we've kind of been through this first, and you know, a lot of the economies in this uh, in this region uh, seem to be coping with the disease better than than other places. We've got China, relatively low figures in China and uh, in uh, you know South Korea. Taiwan's done well, Hong Kong, uh, and so on. Um, are, are we kind of now in, in pole position? Do you think, in world terms, that uh, if things if and when things do get better, we'll be leading the pack? The problem with uh, Asia is um, our economy still depends, uh, a very big portion of it uh, depends on the export. 
um, or export related. Like, for example, Hong Kong is not an export oriented uh, economy like in the 70s, but, but we still have uh, a lot of trade uh, between Hong Kong and China, and China is still very dependent quite dependent on the export. And currently, the, 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 the biggest problem is um, there is no demand or a big reduction of demand uh, in the West. So uh, the USA uh, has locked down uh, its economy. And, you know, you can see, uh, you know, even Europe, uh, the UK, um, they locked down their economy. So there is a drastic uh, reduction uh, in, in uh, demand. So, um, and then it becomes a big problem um, because you have uh, uh, the factories uh, closing down in China uh, or, or because of political reasons, um, um, a lot of uh, forward investment is considering pulling out of the investment, moving their supply chain uh, from China to elsewhere. So, um, yeah, and, and, and also locally, uh, a lot of businesses, are prohibited from from working, and, and the same is true in the West. Um, so, I, I, uh, in the very beginning, um, some audience they they made a comment um, saying, "Oh, dating back from uh, 1967 up till now, he experienced uh, a lot of events uh, like financial crisis and things like that." But I think the current situation that we are facing us right now is unprecedented, at least dating back to World War II. Um, I think in the modern, uh, I, I think even uh, in human history, have we experienced lockdown in such a scale? Probably not. Probably this is the first time we, you know, so many people are prohibited from working. So, um, yeah, I think, um, uh, so So when you say the IMF predicted like 3% in originally, and they have to rethink, I think at this moment it's very difficult for us um, to, to have a precise prediction. Um, for example, like, you know, the unemployment rate in, in the United States, um, you see the first time um, a, a jobless claim going up, by billions each time, each week. Um, yes, very difficult, very difficult. And, and who do you think is particularly vulnerable? Is it the developing world? Would it be, would it be Africa uh, and so on? Or would it be the uh, the advanced economies who could take a take the blow worse? Well, I think, you know, it's like the coronavirus outbreak. Um, you know, at first, China's, uh, China was a hard others hit, and then some economies, they think they might spare from it, um, but and then they got hit. So I cannot say which one, everyone they got hit, you know, just at a different time. So we have to be very, we cannot be complacent, even in Hong Kong. It uh, seems like the, um, the cases, the number of new cases has dropped uh, uh, drastically. And even a couple of days ago, we have no new cases. But, but I think it's a matter of time. It's, you know, things move in tandem, and uh, I don't think we should be complacent. And especially if I recommend to people that, uh, you know, really, if you can, uh, pay down your debt. Because 
well, now you are facing um, um, a, business, a lot of fixed costs. For example, like your mortgage or your rent um, is not going to, it's very sticky. It won't drop immediately, but your income may drop uh, very quickly. So, uh, yeah, we, we got, every one of us got to be very careful. Mm. David Cook, where do you think is more exposed? Where do you think is more vulnerable now? Would it be the developing world? Or would it be Africa and, and so on? Is, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I guess I guess there are two parts of that. One is uh, is the exposure of the uh, of you know uh, the exposure of the actual population to health risks, and that's hard to assess. Uh, right now, uh, you know, you can see the real potential for disaster uh, there, and, and that that being a, a continuing source of, of drag on the global economy. But but I do think that 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 is th- that that uh, their uh, balance sheets and their fiscal exposure um, is is going to be a, a major vulnerability of the global economy uh, going forward. So, so yes, I, so I do think that 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 is that is the major risk that that uh, that we may be able to address through some sort of collective action that uh, that that might uh, feature forbearance on on some of the debt payments from uh, emerging markets and, and developing economies, which is already being put into place by uh, the the multinational agencies, but but that may turn out to be larger than is expected right now. So, you know, that there is the real possibility that uh, that the G20 countries and China will be expected to, uh, you know, display major forbearance, of, you know, measured in trillions of, of U.S. dollars, and whether, you know, they can solve that collective action problem uh, uh, is unclear. Is, is that politically possible? Is that is that feasible? Uh, I I think it, it could be just because it, it it's so it's so global mm. that uh, that you know that it's not just one country that's going to default on their debt, and so then that country w- will be you know can can be the scapegoat, but that there'll be so much uh, so much exposure to, of of the the middle income economies that um, that that there will be some some need for for all the major players to get together to to think about that the sort of restructuring that's going to be needed. And, and are, what do you think? Are we are in East Asia? Are we were first in and, and maybe even first out. You know, are we in a best best position now? Well, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think very clearly that that people that the, that the governments here maybe have some idea of the the actual public health measures that needed to be taken to uh to you know get the domestic economies going but um uh, as uh, uh the the gentleman from the Lion Rock Institute uh, mentioned that that the, the sort of interlinkages between these these economies and the west are are sort of so exposed to international trade and international contacts, and it, it's not clear uh, when when that can be resumed. Mm. So that exposure uh, uh, is, is worrying. Uh, and, and in terms of gone. in terms of vulnerability, I think also the emerging markets um, um, they ha- they might have to deal with 
because I, I predict uh, in the second half year, there might be uh, inflation. Uh, well, you have inflation and, and, and inflation happening at the same time. Because um, since March, and I can see maybe going into May or June, there will be three months, at least three months of time, uh, many people are prohibited from working. And so you have a decrease of productivity, a drastic decrease in productivity. And at the same time, um, government uh, all over the world, they, they try to solve the problem by creating, printing a lot of money. So on one hand, you have a decrease in productivity, and on the other hand, you have an increase in money supply, and that that's a, a recipe for huge inflation in necessity like food and things like that. And for countries that are relatively poor, I think they might get hardest hit in, in food inflation. And that, and then it, will, it might also create a political instability. Hmm. Okay, one, just one comment from Jay who says government needs to take a 40% salary cut. The manipulators and spin doctors need to let the property and construction industry crash. We need to let corporations crash. Businesses need to turn to family-run operations. Corporate directors and banking systems bonuses need to be banned. We will probably see in the future countries like the Philippines and India with small shops will flourish. Places like Hong Kong where the rent is high we have a very big problem to restart. We need manufacturing, not tourism, uh, says Jay. Well, we're going to take a break for the news uh, at nine and and uh, return after that. Mike, maybe we'll see if we can uh, get sort of some uh, hopes of uh, some uh, little optimistic tone uh, emerging uh, as well in our second part of the discussion. We're also going to be talking uh, about the uh, new lineup in the administration, the appointment of those new ministers with uh, Edward Chin from uh, 2047 Hong Kong Monitor. Uh, share your thoughts by emailing us backchat at rthk.hk. The weather cloudy with occasional rain and isolated thunderstorms today, and the rain will be heavy at times tomorrow. 21 degrees now, humidity 89. It's from their neighbours, people who have been fired from their jobs. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Bank Chat on a Thursday morning with Anna Fenton and me, Hugh Chiverton. We continue to talk about uh, the uh, global economic implications, the impact of uh, COVID-19. Later, we're going to be talking about the lineup and the new administration. There's changes uh, at the top uh, with the convener of the 2047 Hong Kong Monitor. Have you got any thoughts on that? And the performance of the uh, outgoing and incoming uh, ministers. Please uh, share your thoughts by calling us on 233-88266, by emailing bankchat at rthk.ac. HK. We'll read out your comments, uh, or you can leave a message on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. TC has done that. He says, the Wuhan coronavirus outbreak <clears throat> exposed the dark side of globalisation. In our grandparents' generation, diseases spread as fast as how ships and trains travel. Nowadays, it spreads as fast and wide as how airplanes travel. <clears throat> Moreover, the Wuhan coronavirus exposed how fragile our global interconnectivity is. Many countries have to issue travel bans against countries that have an outbreak in the pretext of public health. Even open borders in the Schengen area couldn't be sustained. Can China's domestic market really save the day? Its economy had already taken a hit during the US-China trade war. Joining us for this discussion we have with us Peter Wong, chairman of the Lion Rock Institute, free market think tanker in Hong Kong. Dan Wang, analyst at the uh, Economist Intelligence
Intelligence Unit's Access China Service, and David Cook, Professor of Economics at the University of uh, Science and, and Technology. Um, uh, Peter Wong, where does this leave uh, globalisation? Uh, you, you know, with, with these lockdowns, with increasing, uh, you know, people, people expressing concern about their own uh, their own countries and, and so on. Uh, is this going to be have whatever the economic effects will it have a, a massive ideological impact well i think since last year uh, since the um uh, trade war between uh, the u.s and china we we've already witnessed uh, uh the um a, a reverse trend of uh, globalization and this uh, pandemic will definitely uh, catalyze um, the speed of this reverse uh, globalization. And ideologically, I think, for me, I think free flow of goods should have no problem. So I, I, so I don't support uh, uh, putting tariffs on, on goods, but we also have to realize that um, whether we are already at the war situation, um, of course, it's a new kind of war. It's not like World War II that you see cannons and you see, you know, uh, and, you know, uh, it, 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 like the carrier cruising around and shooting cannons. No, but we may be in a new form of uh, warfare. So um, if that is the case, so then you, you would realize why uh, goods would be put uh, tariffs on it or even embargo of certain goods uh, and also um, this, um, uh, the, every country they kind of have a measure uh, prohibiting people from moving freely. So, you know, ideally, if we are in a peacetime, uh, I support the freedom of uh, movement of both goods and, and people, but, but maybe we are now in a new kind of warfare and, and that's why we we, we are experiencing all the lockdowns and all the tariffs and things like that. We, we really have to think about whether we are entering a new uh, era. So, so Professor Cook, um, this this business of, of movement in a new era, I'm thinking particularly of air travel. Uh, if we have to have physical distancing on aeroplanes, and the, what does this mean? How many big airlines are going to disappear? Does it mean the end of budget airlines like Air Asia? What does it actually mean? Oh well, well that that, that uh, I think is is a major risk uh, when we talk about uh, air, the airline travel. That you know that every that many of our lives are just predicated on on being able to you know next week travel to a, a different continent and that's likely to be restricted for you know the, the next year or so and so, so that's uh that you know uh, i think uh that almost all uh economies are going to be expected to uh, support their flag carriers uh you know for an extended period of time which you you know you see in in different uh, advanced economies Around the world of of uh, of direct support from governments for the airline industry. So, what are we going to see? Are we going to see a, a battle for slots? You know, say in Asia, where Cathay would love to have even more of a monopoly on the regional routes than it already has. Are we going to see, um, uh, you know, um, scurrying around with fire sales of um, wet leased aircraft being swapped for slots? Or what's actually going to happen? 
Uh, yeah, I, that that uh, uh, all those uh, are likely scenarios. I, I mean, I, I guess what what I'd say is that uh, that this will probably be an opportunity for uh, for policymakers to think about, you know, what is what is the uh, the most you know rational allocation of slots and airplanes and uh, and international uh, you know access uh, going forward and maybe a, a chance to uh, to get past some of the legacies of you know his, historical advantages that uh, that we may have seen previously or, so, or, so that, that may be one upside or is it going to be the other way around that we see increased nationalized control of air, air traffic and routes that's right. So, so you know that 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 there are dark scenarios that, that you can spin out in all uh, in all industries of of you know declining international cooperation, declining uh, trade, and and sort of uh, industrial retrenchment. Uh, but you know another thing that that you can that you know you can say that that there are a lot of uh, inefficiencies in the airline uh, industries that maybe it's, it's a, a chance for us, you know, given the, the commitments that have been made to airlines also uh, to, 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 to do planning about, about what the future is likely to be one or two years uh, down the road. And, you know, in, in general, you know, that people, you know, you see this, this sort of, uh, decline in international trade right now, but at the same time, you do, you know, that you do recognize the need for all of the advanced economies to be sharing their technical know-how uh, related to health and, and building vaccines and, and, and treatments and, um, uh, and medical services going forward. So, so you know, that, that's another, you know, possible you know, optimistic scenario is is that we will you know uh, address this as rationally as possible. Yeah, we had an email from uh, Mike who said, I, "I heard that social distancing from the mainstream media is one of the best things you can do for your health." I am becoming a believer. RTHK Backchat continues to spread the fear and speculation of possible future doom and gloom. It seems the objective is to keep things lathered up. That comes from Mike. Um, so, if we were to uh, try and find some uh, good news uh, for for Mike's sake and try and reduce the lather, you would find that Professor Cook then in in, in some kind of sort of international cooperation in, in coming together to tackle this. That's right. So, so I mean, I think that that you know there is a possibility that that we will see that uh, that you know that we need to to work together to. To address this, because you know, if 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 uh, things go badly in one country, then, then inevitably that's that's going to going to spread unless we're we're all locked down in our houses forever. So you know that uh, that I think that that you know people generally will you know uh, resolve to you know to turn to rationality after they've uh, they've given it some thought and. Uh, and I, I think things are not going to be great the next year or so, but that, you know, that, that the potentiality for, you know, improved cooperation is out there. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, that, uh, that could, 
you know, you know, I don't. There's no, there's no way to to say that this is, that this is a good thing that, that's happening. But, but more optimistic scenarios, uh, you know, you can think of those. Dan Wang, can you think of more optimistic scenarios? I would find that too optimistic to think some sort of consensus can happen in the coming years. Um, because as far as we can see, that there is absolutely no consensus within G20. Even G7 has a little bit more consensus than G20. And this is precisely because of the worsening relationship between China and the U.S. And also because of that, all countries in the world have to take sides, and they have to do this quickly. Uh, in the past two and a half months, we have seen actually a lot of projects, uh, not just the Belt and Road projects, run into problems um, because they were under either China's pressure or more likely under U.S. pressure to reassign those projects to um, either the U.S. contractors or Chinese contractors. And this kind of a hostile uh, competition between the two countries will last for a long time. And very ironically, the trade war was the main theme last year. Um, and this year it's sort of sidelined, um, but everything is still going on behind the scene, like the Huawei issue, the competition to get this transformative technology like 5G for the future. So what I can see is actually a backwards in globalization for sure and more hostilities coming in the way. Is that necessarily bad? I mean, perhaps it would be better for all the individual countries to become a bit more self-reliant. Becoming yeah, I, I think more self-reliant, um, I wouldn't say that's a bad thing, um, especially for smaller countries. Um, they tend to be the collateral damage when large countries get into conflict. But self-reliance comes at a price. Um, because trade and foreign investment make things cheaper for those countries. But backwards in globalization means that they have to produce things domestically at a higher cost. So consumers, even government, would suffer. And the situation we're in now is that we are facing this huge recession, probably will last for years. It's worse than a financial crisis. And if there are no... Co collaboration at some sort of international level, then at some point we'll, we'll run into a problem uh, that's very serious. For example, if the vaccination is developed by China, but then the U.S. may not, need to, may, may not use it because they can claim that there's some sort of uh, national security concern, and vice versa. If the U.S. developed a cure and China says, no, we're not taking it. So this can develop into a real, real problem in the future for the public health. Uh, uh, Paul in an email says, Hi, Bakshad, I agree with one of your guests. Deflation, then followed by inflation, will be a huge problem in the near future. My worry is that once food prices start to rocket, governments around the world will step in and help the less fortunate by fixing lower food prices. This, in turn, will make food production less profitable and therefore add to our problems with food shortages. Let's hope the economic effects of the reaction to the coronavirus cause less deaths than the virus itself. After all, you don't want Trump to be proved right, do you? That comes from Paul. Peter Wong, did you want to comment? Um, I do think the scare-mongering coming from that chat, uh, rather uh, the scare-mongering may be coming from policymakers that um, 
they put too much uh, emphasis on uh, social distancing. I'm not saying we should not distance from one another, but but you put it into a very strict term, um, and, and then you prohibit people from working. Um, then across the board, that kind of measure is too draconian and uh, causing people, you know, losing their jobs and things like that. And then, and at the end. Many people may not be killed by coronavirus, but they might be killed by, you know, like uh, poverty, depression, and things like that. So I think policymaker, if I want to put an optimistic scenario, is I really hope a policymaker can be sensible on this kind of like, like social distancing or lockdown measure. You know, put people back to work uh, as soon as they, they can. Um, you know, there are cases in Taiwan that, sh- or, or some states in the United States that uh, they didn't uh, uh, lock down their economy, but still um, they are doing pretty well, or at least not worse off compared to those states that uh, have been locked down. So I think uh, policymakers should look into um, those special cases, for example, also like uh, Sweden, look into those cases and reopen the economy as soon as possible in a sensible manner. Well, we have Georgia as the global guinea pig this week, don't we, with Governor Kemp uh, opening up everything from hair salons to massage parlours. I think we're all watching with kind of morbid fascination to see what happens. And, and there are also eight, state, uh, eight states in the United States, like Wyoming or others, they haven't really closed down, uh, locked down their... But they haven't their, had their that many cases, so, have they? Uh, yes, because also because of they are not so densely populated. So, uh, of course, they have, you know, they, 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 they are special cases. But, but we'll see. I mean, the cause of all that kind of lockdown is very devastating um, to the economy, as well as the livelihood of uh, everyone. Okay, some uh, emails with specific concerns. Jay says, or a couple of emails from Jay, who says, um, because a lot of people will be coming out of work, the government is planning to create jobs. Well, the first thing I would like to see them do is create teams of workers to tidy up Hong Kong, uh, remove all the fly tipping, remove the litter, uh, do the little things that should have been the government, done by the government to make Hong Kong a disgusting place and make it right. Um, and also says Hong Kong has to get rid of white elephants that the taxpayer is paying for. They're giving huge bonuses to the directors, for example, Disney World, because lack of income means lack of taxes for the government, hence why the government needs to take a big salary cut. We can't afford anyone who already has two or three houses working in the government. Roy says in an email, for the man on the street, COVID-19 has increased the price of staple food products in supermarkets, flour, rice, oil, mushrooms, all more expensive and surprisingly dog food. Uh, it's now cheaper to buy minced pork and mix with rice to feed my dog or use the family leftovers for some time i've been going to the local wet markets where significant savings can be made i'm now down to my last 16 kilos of rice 30 toilet rolls and six kilos of flour my friends in the uk made fun of my hoarding however it would now appear the uk follows hong kong and as shortages appear in hong kong the uk follows about two weeks later one area that's very frustrating is the reduced postal service in times of chaos lines of communication must be kept open uh if we look back in history humans are very quick to forget the past this is evidenced by every time there's a major incident we are unprepared 
COVID-19 is a case in point. Many businesses have cut back on the fat. The lean, well-run businesses will prevail. Those businesses with reserves or government backing, like airlines, will keep going and the economy will recover. The doom and gloom merchants will be proved wrong in time. For some economies, like China, the opportunity to revisit their economic figures is probably a good thing. The world will recover surprisingly quickly and life will, after a period of time, return to normal. Those thoughts from Roy. Thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you very much indeed uh, to our guests today, to uh, David Cook, Professor of Economics at the University of Science and Technology, uh, Dan Wang, a, a analyst at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and uh, uh, Peter Wong, who's chairman of the Lion Rock Institute. Colin, in an email, says, Backchat, great job. A big thank you to RTHK Backchat team, keeping us all informed on the latest topics, especially the coronavirus. Keep finding those great guests and experts. Listening to Backchat is the best start to the day. Money well spent by the Hong Kong government. Keep up the good work. That comes from Colin, who is not my mother. Um, thank you very much indeed for, for, for those comments. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, politics and uh, the uh, new lineup for the uh, administration in just a moment. Here's uh, an email, first of all, from uh, Phil. Uh, this is addressed to Ho Lok Sang, who was a guest yesterday in our programme. Dear Professor Ho, says Phil, you are incensed by the dysfunctional state of LegCo, which in your opinion is induced by the pro-Dems. The state of LegCo seems to me a completely accurate reflection of the broken state of public affairs in general, as well as the social contract between citizens and their representatives in government. In a typical shallow attempt at misdirection, the pro-establishment camp in Beijing demand that pro-Dems act in good faith as concerns orderly operation of the legislative function. The pro-Beijing camp wants to ensure that Hong Kong government works effectively. Why not focus on renewing the executive branch? In the last six months, Beijing has failed to sack Carrie Lam and her sorry group. This action, which will single-handedly have renewed the extremely powerful executive function and provided space for all stakeholders to de-escalate and de-align. The failure to take this action is even more ludicrous as all said stakeholders have long been in agreement that Carrie Lam and her team have principal responsibility for this huge crisis and that she is not a part of the solution. The much-debated escalated presence of the liaison, effort, uh, liaison office these last few days is a confirmation that Beijing has reduced trust in the current executive, yet Beijing takes no action to replace her and you choose to focus on the dysfunction in LegCo. What nonsense uh, is this? Those thoughts uh, from Phil. Well, to comment on the uh, on those uh, new appointments and uh, the changes at the top of the, the administration. We're joined now by Edward Chin, convener of the 2047 Hong Kong Monitor. Mr Chin, good morning. Good morning. Uh, is, is there a general pattern you see uh, in those appointments? You know, the, we've got uh, new names and some old names going and so on, strengths and weaknesses of each individual. But is there an underlying kind of message, do you think? Well, I, I guess, yes, uh, some of the old names is gone. Um, people who are incompetent, you know, half-sleeping inside Lechko and a new one. <laughs> They, you know, like they are, you know, like from the perception of it, you know, they, they are very much pro Beijing. The guy who is, um, will be running the constitutional affairs got a picture of Xi Jinping of sorts. And I mean, it's unprecedented. It looks ugly. And, you know, the way I look at it as a business person, I'm just counting, you know, there are only around 8,000 more days before 2047 finishes. So should I be, really like um, putting my heart and soul into Hong Kong. If I know those guys who are not really defending the two systems. And, you know, like the way I look at Carrie Lam now is like she is a puppet. And then those who 
are running Hong Kong now is uh, definitely the liaison office. So it, it makes you feel very uneasy, even from just a few days ago with the arrest of the 15 pro-democracy leaders, uh, including Jimmy Lai was just reading the news that uh, Bloomberg put up the news saying that Jimmy Lai is asking for help to help up with the uh, subscription. So it gives you very uneasy. Right now, we're still fighting with the pandemic. So, um, you know, if you talk about all these different new ministers, you know, it, it ways to be seen you know, how competent they are. But, you know, trying to uh, shuffle people right now, uh, it's a bad time. Why Why don't they, they fire, you know, like uh, Theresa, you know, the, uh, and, um, and some of the other people who are highly controversial, which is like the chief of police, you know, the PK tank. You know, these are the people that gives us so much pain over the last few months. So what, what is the answer to that? Why do those people continue to sit there? Because they want loyalists. And loyalists, uh, those who could, you know, like from, I think the CCP's philosophy is that, that they want their own people fighting their own people. So it's like, hey, you know, we didn't touch it. It's like you Hong Kongers, you screw up, right? So it's not us who do this. So this, this, this is a mentality. You have to understand, you know, how Chinese Communist Party think. And, you know, when, when I take a look, not just at Hong Kong, I take a look at what happened in in Tibet and also what happened in Xinjiang now. You know, like we are kind of uh, getting, well, it, the setting is different. But at the same time, you know, like, you know, when I take a look at Tibet, as I alluded to earlier, they also promised them, you know, the system would be intact. And then they signed the 17-point treaty in 1951. And in 59, they kicked the Dalai Lama out, His Holiness. And in, in Hong Kong, you know, we got 8,000 days left. So what are the tycoons doing? Take a look at what Li Ka-shing uh, is doing. He has already done his corporate planning way, way before, you know, like I set up the, the corporate entity in Cayman and all that, you know, and then, you know, like as a Hong Kong, as the middle class and upper middle class people and also people who are in the grassroots, I think we are all stand together. You know, it's the pandemic doesn't stop us to, to think about, you know, what, how the city should be run. And then I think we should be acutely aware that, you know, like even like the, the, the Tiananmen um, video is coming, they want to stop it. I mean, I just don't think about business anymore. I think about, you know, whether Hong Kong, you know, it's, uh, has a future with these new guys. But w- when we're talking about the, the civil service, we're not talking about legislators. It's only natural to expect loyalty. You would expect that in any commercial setting. Anybody would want uh, staff and uh, a, a civil service that, that uh, are loyal to the administration. And, and indeed, when you join the civil service, um, you know, you promise to uh, support the Hong Kong government and to support the chief executive. And that's what you're there for. That is your, that is your loyalty. That is your primary loyalty. And it always has been. Um, so it's not a question of having a diversity of views or, or anything like that. It's a question of having an able, uh, able collection of people uh, who will work to support the government. That's what the civil service is there to do. Yes. But, you know, those who give us so much pain over the last nine months, including, 
you know, like from from the, you know, like the social movement from last year till now, you know, like business have been crumbling down, and you know, even with all the stimulus package uh, that we had, it is honestly the confidence of the chief executive. You know, like with Kerry um, Lam, I think a lot of people uh, would agree that, you know, like the, the two systems that was uh, promised by Deng Xiaoping, it's uh, quite different. You know, like they, they try to rewrite history right now, you know, both from the Beijing side and also from the pro-Beijing camp. And then those who are from the pro-Beijing camp, they know that time is running up and then they try to extract so much resources, including the ministers, you know, like they're having these three, four million per year package, Hong Kong dollar terms. And then, you know, like if um, uh, things are pushed to shelf, you know, they just um, leave, right? They will retire. Maybe they're, they're, the other half is a, a Canadian citizen. I don't know. Like, you know, the, the whole setting, it makes you feel uneasy right now. Um, and I just wish the new ministers would do the best job they could, and then you know, like, and the pro democracy camp needs to keep on fighting to get the 35 uh, seats coming up in September. This is very important, but uh, also President Xi Jinping that he has to trust that Hong Kong people should um, really have the ability to make Hong Kong become good again. I mean, right now uh, it's just um, a matter of um, uh, uneasiness in the city. My office is very close to Lang Kui Fong, and it's, the whole street is dead right now. So if you could ask Ellen Zeman, you know, no one is coming. Okay. Edward Chin, thank you for joining us. Convener of the 2047 uh, Hong Kong Monitor. Mr. Pink gets the last word in an email. who says Hong Kong's economy will be in free fall in the second half of this year if, as seems likely, anti-government protesters return to the streets throughout the summer as we approach the LegCo elections in September. Chinese tourists, who have historically been the lifeline for large swathes of the economy, will stay away if the protesters rehash the anti-China vitriol we saw last year. This could see local unemployment surge past a percent. Ironically, the only group offering job opportunities over the past few months could be the Hong Kong Police Force. That comes from Mr. Pink. Thank you very much indeed for that. Anna, thank you very much indeed. That's it for the programme today. Uh, back at 8.30 tomorrow. The weather